0: All right, well, we began uh, last week with chapter 22 by looking at uh, paragraph 1 and then the first half of paragraph 2. We saw, first of all, in paragraph 1, the, con- the confession asserts that not only does all mankind have a knowledge of their Creator from the light of nature, the works of creation and providence, but also, therefore, because they have this knowledge they all have the duty to worship God, their Creator. No one is exempt from this. No one can say they didn't get the memo. However, the paragraph goes on to explain that although all men have an obligation to worship their Creator, nevertheless, only the Creator can and has defined how He is to be worshipped. So that no one who attempts to worship Him in any other manner than than which he has uh, explained in his word, no one's worship shall be accepted, and rather it is enough to damn someone, and it is uh, idolatry. Well, with that uh, paragraph, I said that the confession kind of opens up, therefore, the regulative principle of worship, um, that really, worship is not man's idea. It's God's idea. You know, sometimes we... in dealing with the culture as they kind of just like take marriage and make it whatever we want, we'll kind of say, well, you know, marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. You can't just change it. It's the same thing with worship. Um, we can't just spitball and, and it's like, oh, that? Oh, yeah, it's it's not like a jazz session. Like, oh, yeah, that was really good. Like, no, um, it's more like a marching band or something very frumpy and I don't know what. Um, but it's God's idea, and therefore only God can define what worship is. Well, all the rest of the chapter, therefore, goes to define what the acceptable way of worship is, what God has commanded. We saw, beginning with paragraph 2, um, <clears throat> that the only true object of worship is God alone. Again, paragraph 2 begins, "...religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures." We saw particularly in that last phrase, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. That's especially directed at Rome, though it could apply to other things as well. Rome argues, on the one hand, uh, they're very adamant, only God is to be worshipped. Um, only God is to be worshipped, and they call that um, uh, Latria. That is the worship of the deity. and Only God gets Latria. Um, however... I would say they introduce the worship of angels and saints other another name namely Dulia um, and <clears throat> without trying to offend them or call them dumb or stupid or anything in my opinion they just slap the name dulia on us on it and tell us it's not worship um, however if it looks like worship it acts like worship it do, it does it worships like worship um, it's probably worship um, it's very interesting we'll see. Uh, Rome is is very capable of an infinite number of distinctions to to justify their doctrines and practices. Um, we've kind of seen this in our reading of John Davenant. Um, it's just like, well, oh, no, no, we don't mean that. It's just like, well, because of this distinction that we made up that's found nowhere in the Word of God. Um, and that's, yeah, so we don't mean that, right? Um, and, and Rome is very fond of that, and we see that here. <coughs> Therefore, we don't buy into the distinction between dulia and Latria, at least not how they do. We do think it's okay to show honor to certain men and women. We show honor to our parents and our superiors, Um, you know, with King Charles III becoming the new sovereign over the land, supposedly. There's nothing inherently idolatrous about one of his courtiers or whatever they're called necessarily bowing to him. Um, We wouldn't ascribe that as worship, nor is there anything wrong with rising when a judge enters into a courtroom, nor is there even anything wrong with honoring saints that have gone before us in recognizing um, their their contribution to the church and their faithfulness to the gospel. But to go beyond this, to pray to them, to ask them even for mercy, and then surely give thanks to them, Why would you not give thanks after they give you the mercy? This all belongs to God's worship, and so it is properly an act of worship to do those things, and just because you're saying it's not worship doesn't mean that that merely solves it, right? You can't just slap Dulia on things. Um, It is actually, in fact, de facto worship. Well, today we are continuing with paragraph two, and in particular, the second half You remember I said in the first half of paragraph two, it deals with the only true object of worship, namely God alone. The second half deals with the only mediator between us and God, or really the only way in which you can approach the true object of worship, right? Through the mediator. It says, Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. Here, again, our confession is really polemicizing, especially against Rome, particularly in the very, very last phrase, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. For us, there is only one mediator. Jesus Christ. Just as Rome distinguishes between Latria and Dulia, so they also bring forth a whole host of distinctions and arguments to justify their doctrines and practices with regards to other mediators. I think think we would do very well in a a certain sense to interact more um, with Roman Catholicism. What I mean by that is if i feel like the reformers were so much sharper on certain doctrines because they were dealing with rome that was always trying to subvert those things and and they were the reformers were well aware of all the gaslighting of rome um and yet so often because we don't kind of have rome as that we don't really have to interact with them as much many errors that creep in the reformers would have recognized Ooh, that's that's Roman. You, you really shouldn't do that. Um, and yet Protestants today are like, oh, that's fine. The other reason why I think, at least as Protestants, we should at least be cognizant of, of Romanist arguments, because there, there are so many Protestants out there, even genuine believers, I think, who have such a facile understanding of Roman Catholicism, that when they bump into the first Catholic, uh, are actually Romanist. I'm, I'm really, I'm not trying to, I hope you don't think this is trying to be obnoxious. I'm really trying to not call them Catholics anymore um, as a matter of conscience. Um, but when they bump into the first Romanist, and the Romanist says, yeah, we think we're, we're saved by grace alone too, apart from works. And the Protestant goes, what? You guys believe that? And they say, yeah, well, you guys worship Mary and the angels. And they go, well, no, we don't, we don't worship them, no. No, we honor them. Okay, but but you guys believe in more than one mediator and they go no we think Christ is the unique mediator there's no one else who can be a mediator like him and then the and then the protestant goes oh my gosh i must have been taught wrong protestants must misunderstand roman roman catholicism when actually you didn't understand them wrong you just had a facile argument and you're not used to all their subversion and gaslighting with which they actually do introduce worship and other mediators and mediators in conflict with the mediatorship of Christ. Um, and so I tell you all that so that, you know, if you actually have a conversation with a Romanist, you can actually give a decent critique against them and not one which they're kind of used to. Like, if, if you deal with the Jehovah's Witness and you start with John 1-1, they see you coming. They're, they're ready for that. The Romanist is so ready for a ton of other Catholic, uh, uh, Protestant critiques um, and and they can be very, um, you know, I don't want to call them all like deceivers, but it is very deceptive, I think, uh, some of their arguments. Um, Well, as I said, they bring forth all kinds of distinctions to justify the mediatorship of saints and angels. First, of course, they distinguish between Christ alone as mediator, which they argue is an utterly unique mediator. In fact, just as with Latria, they totally affirm that that kind of worship is due to God alone, and they are even offended if you accuse them of idolatry with saints or angels, so also they affirm that Christ is the utterly unique mediator and there can be no one other like him, okay? One modern Roman writer says, much to the surprise of many Protestants I have spoken to over the years, the Catholic Church actually acknowledges Christ to be our one and absolutely unique mediator who can reconcile us to the Father in a strict sense. Notice the last phrase, in a strict sense. Ah, yes, that's where the error comes in. Christ is the absolutely unique mediator. They argue, and the ignorant Protestant hears that and goes, "Wow, I must, I must have really misunderstood Catholicism." Tell me more, right? And then they they start swimming the Tiber. We do acknowledge that they at least make the distinction, therefore, between Christ's mediatorship, his unique mediatorship, and lesser mediatorships, yet we don't buy into the same distinction. They refer, refer to these as subordinate mediators or a subordinate mediatorship. Another modern Roman writer says there is, however, a less strict sense that Christians have always understood the idea of mediation. That's a lie. We haven't always understood it that way. Anyway, this is the idea of a subordinate mediation by which we participate in the mediation of Jesus Christ. It is a mediation that is effective through, with, and in Christ. The subordinate mediator never stands alone, but is always dependent on Jesus. So again, just as with Julia here also there is a very carefully worded definition of subordinate mediation which claims to protect the uniqueness of Christ's mediatorship. Notice, for example, they say that it is really just a participation in Christ's mediation or it is dependent on his mediation. Now perhaps you as a good Protestant are thinking to yourself, well, this is very easy to debunk. Um, very easy to debunk. It's a no-brainer. I'll just quote First Timothy two five. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And while you are correct, I agree with you. Romanist is ready for that quote, and they have a response. One writer says of this passage: Is Saint Paul rejecting the idea of mediators subordinate to Jesus? <laughs> It's like the gall to take a passage which shows the utter unique mediatorship of Christ. Did God truly say? like It's like, okay. Um, is St. Paul rejecting the idea of mediators subordinate to Jesus? No, just the opposite. Chapter 2 opens with the following exhortation. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. Supplications, prayers, and intercession are acts of mediation. Paul is explicitly instructing Timothy that Christians are to assume the role of a subordinate mediator between God and those listed, namely all men, for kings and all who are in high positions. The theological principle that Paul uses to buttress his command is the passage already quoted in verse 5, the one primary mediation of Jesus Christ. Here they basically argue that since intercession, which is truly an act of a mediator and a high priest, um, for example, Christ, he ever lives to intercede on our behalf, and he is our mediator. Well, they say, since interceding on behalf of others is something that a mediator does, we are therefore mediators. Subordinate mediators, since we also intercede for others, to put that bluntly in the form of a syllogism, it would be: intercession is an act of a mediator. Christians are called to intercession, therefore, Christians are lesser mediators. Well, before I respond to that, I uh, I want to to you I want you to think how you would respond to that. What would you say to that? i think you're right but i i don't think they would disagree with you so i don't know that that's necessarily how i would respond anybody else Yeah, but they would still agree with that. They'd say, we're not denying that. You know. All right. Well, there's a lot of things to say to this argument. First, we agree that Christians are called to intercede for one another. That's very clear in Scripture. It is clear that God uses the prayers of the saints. We can even say saints without meaning the saints and they do. Um, we can say that God uses the prayers of the saints um, even to bless others, um, even that they would grow in grace, we could say. Philippians 1.19, <clears throat> For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Or Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Christians aren't denying that. Protestants aren't denying that. The main problem I have with their argument is that I don't think it follows that by interceding on behalf of others, you therefore become a mediator, even if it is a subordinate mediator. I don't deny that interceding is a necessary act of a mediator, but just because you intercede does not necessarily make you a mediator. Or we could say that while mediatorship includes intercession, yet it is far more than that. And I would argue that by applying the term mediator to simply intercessors, you conflate the two concepts in a very, very unhealthy way. For example, can I arrest people? Joe, can I arrest people? I can. You and I are both cops, brother. We are both law enforcement. Police can arrest people. I can arrest someone. Therefore, I am a cop. No, you shouldn't really say that. Because if you do that, you'll just be impersonating a police officer and you'll get arrested. <laughs> if you say, don't worry, I'm a cop. I can do this, right? You'll get arrested. You're impersonating a police officer. Have you ever administered medicine to your child? You're a doctor. You're a doctor, right? Doctors administer medicine, don't they? You're a doctor. You're you're a subordinate doctor, right? Um, No, that's just kind of dumb. Um, Yes, intercession is an act of a mediator, but it's so much more than that. And it's so much bigger in a qualitative sense. It's not just quantitative, it's, it's qualitatively different. I can arrest someone, but I, that's still a, a qualitatively different thing from when a police officer does it. There's a difference between someone who wears a uniform and, a, and someone else who can do an act that is similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. And that's what I would say about us. We intercede. We have no problem with saying we intercede But that does not make us mediators. Furthermore, when Christ intercedes as mediator, it means so much more than it could ever mean for us interceding as mediators. He represents us legally, covenantally before God as our mediator. Christians intercede on behalf of others, but Christians do not legally represent others before the Lord. Furthermore, Christ represents God to us in a way that intercessors can never represent God to other Christians. Furthermore, as we have seen in our study of the high priest's intercession with the golden altar of incense, Christ's intercession is not merely his praying to the Father, but it is his prayerful application of his blood and atonement uh, and merits on our behalf, which could never be said of us. We do not, in that sense, mediate and prayerfully apply, um, obviously, our own blood or even the blood of Christ. That is something that is unique to the high priest alone. Um, now, while the Romanists, I think, would, would agree with all that I've said, to some degree, they'd say, like, well, we agree with that. We don't want to conflate the two mediatorships. Yet I would say you conflate them by calling them both mediators. Um, It's very interesting, too. There's a lot of things we could say about Rome's understanding of Christ's mediatorship. Um, For example, we would say two other absolute necessary things for a mediator between God and sinners is that he be sinless. I think they would agree with that. And part of me wonders if that's one of the reasons why they argue that Mary was free of original sin because she's, she's like the biggest mediator besides Jesus that there really is, right? We'll look at some blasphemous things they say. Um, that's why I said, it's all gaslighting. Don't believe when the Romanists tell you, like, oh, Christ's mediatorship is unique. We'll see. That's all gaslighting. Don't buy into that. Um, the other thing that's interesting, and I think there's probably a connection here, though I haven't been able to explicitly find it, is if you were to look, I think it's chapter 8 of our Confessions, when it talks about the mediatorship of Christ, we say that Christ, the eternal son, is the mediator and he acts as mediator according to both natures, according to his human nature and his divine nature, not in the same way, but in ways that are appropriate to each nature. Rome says that he only acts according to his human nature. Part of me thinks then that that they like to they're trying to say Well, mediation is a specifically human thing. And when the the Protestant says, well, you need to be God and man to mediate between God and men, they say, well, no, no, you just have to be man. Therefore, Mary and other saints can do it as well. Um, I I don't know if that's cause or effect, but it's somehow connected, and and it's kind of part of their, their arguments together. Furthermore, the idea of a mediator is one who makes a way to God. Yet the saints themselves have to go through Christ to pray to the Father. But again, to use that language, um, I think it makes it sound as though Mary or the saints or angels themselves have made a way. They have direct access, um, perhaps in a lesser way. They have favor with him, and they can procure blessings. I would say, let me me just correct your doctrine, Romanus. I would say a better distinction is this to say that Christ's intercession is unique, and that we offer up subordinate intercessions. I'm much more comfortable with the idea of subordinate intercessors, and I think the distinction we make is precisely because Christ intercedes as mediator, and we do not, right? So we can affirm all that, but we don't have to make their, their illogical jump to like, well, therefore, we're mediators, like, no. No, we can affirm intercession um, without making the jump that they do, and in fact, I would say it's just, it's just confusing. Furthermore, while Rome says that Christ's intercession and his merits alone are utterly unique, yet I would say in all kinds of ways and in their prayers, they undermine the uniqueness of Christ's mediatorship. It's really funny. I think it's almost like Rome is ashamed of a lot of the things they do. So like, they'll they'll teach all this stuff about Mary and all that stuff, but when there's a push for official dogma of the church to happen, the Vatican goes like, no, we don't need to make this official dogma yet. It's like, it's like really weird. We're like, well, should you teach it or not? Is it official dogma of the church or not? Like, well, we don't want to make it official dogma, um, but you can still tell your people to pray to Mary and that's all fine. It's like, okay. But I think they undermine um, the mediatorship in all kinds of ways, even though they have the category of subordinate mediatorship. For example, the 16th century um, Anglican, Andrew Willett, when Anglicans were much more anti-Roman than they are today, he says, they seem in their very words to confess that Christ is the only singular advocate and patron of mankind, that by himself alone and by his own merits procures all grace and mercy. So he says, they seem to say that, but, he continues, they make other mediators and intercessors besides Christ even in that high and singular degree. So just because they say that, yet by their actions and what they attribute to those other mediators, you're, you're infringing into the supposedly unique mediatorship of Christ. He continues, for not only Christ by their doctrine... By or by their doctrine, by his merits procures grace, but other saints also, by their merits, are our mediators. As it is plain to see in that popish prayer, by the blood of Thomas, for, uh, which for thee he did shed, make us, Christ, climb where Thomas did ascend. In this blasphemous prayers, and a thousand uh, such others, they pray only to Christ as God, not as mediator, Men departed, and many of them. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got, not as mediator, but they prayed to men departed, um, and many of them no saints. They make their only mediators by their own proper merit. So what he's saying is this whole idea that you know these lesser mediators um, participated Christ's unique mediatorship. Actually, what they do is make those mediators to the mediator who mediates between God. So they pray to Christ through that mediator when really we're supposed to pray to the Father through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he explains, and this is, I think, a, this is where it really nails it, their saints are not only intercessors for grace, but confers of grace and help, which is the highest degree of mediation. Right? When a mediator can give you blessings and help and grace, that's the, that's, that's the weakest, most unique part of mediation, and yet the saints and the angels are said to do that. They appoint several patrons among the saints for all purposes. Saint Apollonia for the toothache, Saint Rook for the pestilence, Saint Petronil for the ag, Saint Gregory for uh, scholars or uh, students, Saint Morris for soldiers, Saint Luke for painters, Saint Crispin for shoemakers, Saint Nicholas for the sea, St. Iodicus for corn or wheat, St. Urban for wine, and thus do these saints not only, as they bear us in hand, pray for these graces and blessings, but they have power themselves to bestow them. That's a huge problem. You've just totally undermined Christ's mediatorship. Furthermore, just listen to the words of the famous prayer uh, to Mary called uh, Salve Regina. Sawe Regina. I got mad as I read this. I was like, Hail Queen, meaning Mary. She is called the Mother of Mercy. She is called our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Mary is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. The Mother of Mercy? What? Then it says, Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, most gracious advocate. I thought she was just subordinate. That sounds like she's kind of right up there with Christ. I would say Christ is the most gracious advocate, and no other is more gracious than Him. But they use that terminology. That that um, what's it called when it's like most? It's not good, better, or best. They use the superlative language and apply it to Mary. You can't just say, well, Christ's mediatorship is unique, and then call Mary most gracious advocate. Like I said, that's just gaslighting. Don't be deceived by that. When they tell you, you know, oh, we, told, oh, we agree with that with Protestants, they're, they're lying. <laughs> Either intentionally or unintentionally, they don't actually believe that. First of all, they say, turn and they next of all they say, turn thine eyes of mercy. Her eye that doesn't that sound like her eyes give the mercy? After all, that kind of language is is normally said of God. Psalm 25, 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. The one who turns is the one who's gracious. There her, she is the one who turns. Doesn't she therefore give mercy and not Christ? And then of course they say pray for us o holy mother of god that we may be worthy of the promises of christ yeah like i said they say christ's mediatorship is unique that's just gaslighting don't don't fall for it there are many ignorant romanists who you can you know have very good discussions with i'm not saying like like you know if there's a like a mother mary in their front yard i'm not like saying go blow it up with an m80 or anything like that but um but these things are blasphemous. That's blasphemy. And um, it's very offensive. That's my first response. Is that just because we intercede doesn't mean we're mediators. And even though Rome claims that all these saints or angels are mere intercessors on our behalf, yet they assign to them the acts of mediatorship, namely the conferring and the dispensing of grace. My second response to the idea of subordinate mediators is that it's one thing for the Bible to speak about other Christians praying and interceding for us, or even speaking about our asking other Christians to intercede for us. If that's all they were saying, like if that's all they were talking about and they were just like kind of applying the term mediator to that, um, I would still disagree, but it'd be a much different conversation. That's not what they mean. It's a whole other thing when you're talking about praying to other Christians to pray for you, especially saints that have already died. First of all, there's a world of difference between asking someone to pray for you, which is fine and good, and praying to someone to pray to you. Those are two totally different concepts, right? Next, it's one thing to ask saints that are living to pray for you. I can text you guys. Sometimes, before the sermon, I'll, I'll, like, I'll grab someone. I'll be like, will you pray for me? Pray for me. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. Will you pray for me? That's one thing. I have yet to appeal to St. Augustine to help me. It's entirely different to pray to someone who is, um, who is, who is gone. I would say... To, to pray to saints in heaven as if they can hear us is very akin to, you're basically just, it's like praying to God now. God can hear you everywhere, um, and so the saints can as well, um, but it's totally different just to ask someone to pray for you. That last aspect in particular, that the saints who are dead can hear us, is something that the Protestants attacked in particular, um, that, that in heaven they hear you as God does. For example, listen to what William Perkins says. The saints departed, pray unto God, by giving thanks unto him for their own redemption and for the redemption of the church of God upon earth, as seen in Revelations 5.8. The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Verse 9, and they sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, because thou wast killed and hast redeemed us to God. Verse 13, And all the creatures which are heaven heard, uh, uh, I heard saying, Praise and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forevermore. So the saints in heaven are praying. We don't deny that. They're praising and and they have communion with God, right? And just part of being a creature and having communion with God is you pray to him. We're not denying that. Furthermore, he he says... The saints departed pray generally for the state of the whole church. Revelation 6, 9. And I saw under the altar the souls of them that were killed for the word of God, and they cried, How long, Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and offend, avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Whereby we see that they desire a final deliverance of the church and a destruction of the enemies thereof, that they themselves, with all the people of God, might be advanced to fullness of glory in body and soul, and this far we consent. Like, we also can agree that the saints in heaven, and even the angels, pray to God um, for, for the deliverance of the church in general, okay? However, the difference is, Perkins says, <clears throat> the dissent or difference with the church of Rome is this, they hold and teach that the saints in heaven, as the Virgin Mary, Peter, and Paul, etc., do make intercession to God for particular men according to their several wants, and that having received particular men's prayers, they present them unto God. That's, that's much more different. It's more different to say that they pray for us generally. It's another to say that they receive our prayers from the Earth that they hear us, and therefore present them to God. As far as the supposed reasons from the Word of God, which Romanists bring forth, they are as follows. First, turn with me to Revelation chapter eight. They'll always find one verse or two, like see? Nothing to do with the context. It's like when they justify purgatory from, what is it, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Each man's work will be tested by fire. Okay, Anyway, Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose from before the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here there is an angel who is offering up the prayers of the saints. And so the Romanists argue that this, um, from this we can argue that that saints, or even angels, have some kind of role in presenting our prayers to the Lord. As far as how to respond to that, I'd say there are two options. First, it may very well be that this angel is actually Christ himself, who himself is often called the angel of the Lord. And that's not just Protestant wishful thinking. Augustine, for example, concluded that this angel was himself Christ. Um, I think that's very possible. Second, it may be that this angel is just an angel, but that we should conclude from this that we are to pray unto angels it does not follow. We have to remember that Revelation is all a vision. It's apocalyptic uh, literature. It's Not everything makes perfect sense. Um, it's kind of like a dream. You know how in a dream, sometimes with a different face... It will be someone you know in real life, but that's not actually their face in real life. But in your dream, it kind of makes sense. Um, that's kind of how apocalyptic literature works. It, there's meaning, but it's also not like strictly like when you're awake and outside of a vision. I would say that if that were the case, if this is an angel, um, what this is is just part of a larger pattern in which we see that angels do all kinds of things, which are in many ways part of salvation, but we don't actually attribute salvation to them. For example, Isaiah chapter 6. Very similar pattern, and I almost wonder if Isaiah has this in mind. Isaiah is a very well-quoted book in the book of Revelation. After Isaiah is overcome, not only with seeing the Lord upon his throne, but then with his own sinfulness, he despairs. But we read, "...then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal," that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Well, we might argue. There an angel takes a coal from the altar, just as the angel in Revelation takes fire from the altar. And what's to stop us from arguing that therefore angels make atonement for sin? That they forgive, right? Right? Well, we don't, we don't conclude that. We'd say it's, it's part of the picture that shows that in many ways um, angels are the servants of God and he works through them, but we don't strictly attribute those things to them because it's a vision, right? So also we can say, yeah, what's happening in Revelation, it's the picture um, of the prayers of the saints going up as, as the incense went up in the temple, and an angel is being used there but to conclude from that, that therefore angels present our prayers to the Lord, is, is, is jumping too far. Um, next, as I said, one of the arguments that Protestants made uh, was to say that saints in heaven don't really have knowledge of all that takes place on the earth as God does. They may know some things, they certainly do. Um, if God chooses to reveal it to them or as other saints depart and they communicate with the saints that are there. But generally, they do not have an awareness of our present needs in some kind of omniscient or semi-omniscient way um, as God does. But Romanists actually argue that they do. Andrew Willett says, How should the dead come by the knowledge of human affairs? The papists think they have it by God's gift. So God just gives them that kind of, maybe not total omniscience, but like semi-omniscience. Otherwise, they say, they see all things in God as in a clear glass. So God is like the Palantir, right? You can just see everything. You Mary hears everything by just seeing through God, right? To prove this, they argue from Luke 15.10. Turn with me there. Very common verse for them to justify this. Luke fifteen ten. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There they have, uh, they argue that the angels in heaven they know what happens in the world, even when one sinner repents. Therefore, they see what goes on here, and we can pray to them. First, we should say that we agree there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And angels, although they are not omniscient since they are creatures, yet they do have a great deal of knowledge. Furthermore, much of this knowledge comes from the fact that they visit earth. In fact, um, there's a lot of evidence to say that when the saints gather for Sunday worship, angels are even there. Um, in the assembly as well. And so they, they do have a great deal of knowing uh, what goes on in the earth, and they even see, you know, if a, someone were to be baptized in church, they would see when a sinner repents. And so, yes, we can say, we agree, there is joy in heaven, in in the heavenly places, when a sinner repents. To argue from this, though, that they know all of our affairs on earth, or <laughs> that they should be prayed to, is another thing entirely that's not in Scripture. Lastly, they argue from Luke sixteen. Turn with me there. Luke sixteen twenty seven through twenty eight. This is like the worst argument. It's like you're not even trying. Come on. Although what they don't have much to work with. Um, John Davenant <laughs> says in the beginning, he says it's really sad because our job is really easy to argue justification by faith alone. He's like, all we have to do is quote scripture. Their job is really hard. They have to try to like argue it somehow without the word of God. Luke sixteen twenty-seven through 28, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man says, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So there they say, look, you have someone who is praying to Abraham who is a dead saint. Therefore, you may pray to the saints who have passed. First of all, the problem with that is the rich man himself is also dead and not alive on the earth. Second of all, this is a parable and should not be pressed too literally. Perkins' critique of this argument is very good. He says, out of a parable, nothing can be gathered but that which is agreeable to the intent and scope thereof. For by the same reason it may as well be gathered that the soul of the rich man being in hell had a tongue. There he's talking about where he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to get me just a drop of water to cool my tongue. But those who are in debt, those who are in hell, only their souls are there. Their bodies are in the grave awaiting the general resurrection. So then how can he be said to have a tongue? Well, it's it's a parable is what he's arguing. He says... um. Again, if it were true which they gather, we may gather also that the wicked in hell have compassion and love to their brethren on earth and a zeal to God's glory, all which are false. Who's praying? It's the man in hell, the unregenerate. Does that really prove that Christians should pray to the saints? It's like, no, that's not really the strongest argument. Man, I don't think you should argue that. So in other words, it's a parable and we don't, we don't draw things from it We don't press it too far. Well, as opposed to these arguments put forth, to the contrary, from Scripture, the pattern of prayer is that it is to be to God alone, through Christ alone. We see nowhere in Scripture where living saints pray to dead saints or to angels. In fact, there's a very interesting passage. Turn with me to Colossians 2.18. Colossians 2.18, it applies to worshiping. It, it, it critiques the Dulia argument um, as well as the mediatorship argument. Colossians 2.18. <clears throat> Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. There, Paul criticizes the practice of giving worship to angels. This is very important, however, for several reasons. First of all, the practice of worshiping angels might better just be understood as the venerating of angels. And it was not an uncommon practice of the Jews of Paul's day. In fact, one scholar notes that invoking the names of angels, that's praying to them, right?, was a means to ward off evil in the ancient world in general and in the geographic region of Colossae in particular. Another commentator says, Paul is characterizing this calling on angels for protection as tantamount to the worship of angels. Again, as I've said, you can't just do the works of worship and slap another name on it and it becomes other than worship. Um, What's particularly interesting is that These were Jews who were doing this. Which means they were monotheists. (laughs) They didn't argue that they were worshipping angels or praying to them as a man should worship or or pray to Yahweh, of course. No, he's God alone, right? But they are lesser people. They are mediators as well. They are helpers of God. And yet Paul says, no, that's the worshipping of angels by your actions. Lastly, Again and again in Scripture, we are called to trust Christ alone as our merciful high priest. We need no other mediator. And it is only out of doubting his kindness and mercy that sinners have turned to others to mediate with the mediator. I'll leave you with this today. It's very encouraging. It's from the Belgic Confession. Um, This is one of what's called the three forms of unity used by the Dutch Reformed. The Belgic Confession, Article 26 on Christ the Mediator. If then we should seek for another mediator, who would be well-affected towards us, who would be kind towards us, who could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies? And if we seek for one who hath power and majesty, who is there that hath so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his Father, and who hath all power in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than his own well-beloved Son of God? Therefore it was only through distrust that this practice of dishonoring instead of honoring the saints was introduced doing that which they have uh, which they never have done nor required but have on the contrary steadfastly rejected according to their bounden duty as appears by their writings neither must we plead our unworthiness for the meaning is not that we should offer our prayers to God on account of our own worthiness but only on account of the excellency and worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is become ours by faith. In other words, if you need another mediator to be able to have contact with the actual mediator himself, and it's because of your unworthiness, how are you ever going to be worthy even of that mediator? If you look at all your sinfulness, won't you just eventually need a mediator to the mediator to the mediator? Oh, don't do that. Look not to your own worthiness and your own sin, but look to Christ alone. He is the adequate mediator, and we need not seek another. Well, that's it for the last part of paragraph two. Any questions or comments before we're done? Yeah, yeah, that, uh, I, hadn't looked, I hadn't touched on that, but yeah, there's probably something there for that. Because um, this stuff, uh, you know, praying to the dead and saints who have gone before, that's just paganism. And that really entered into the church really from other pagan practices, a lot of this other stuff. And so it should not surprise us that the pagan nations around Israel also prayed to the dead. It's just very common, right? Yeah, yeah, I could have explored that more. Jason, what about the argument that simply prayer itself is worship? That's why we don't do it to non-thee. So the argument that prayer itself is worship um to argue against all romanism. To argue against what? The romanism aspect To argue against their romanism aspect. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at. Um and that's what I, I meant when I said there's a world of difference between asking someone to pray for you and praying to someone to pray for you. Prayer is an, is directed to worship uh, to God alone. It's an act of worship. Um, we don't really, yeah, we don't really speak of it any other way, not in Scripture. So, and that's why I said there, you know, when we pray and we talk to God, like you can do it quietly on your own or even in your own heart. Um, and they kind of bring that aspect into the saints as well, yet they need to like give them some, a little bit of omniscience to be able to do that. And so again, at, at one point, it's just like, well, in what way do you not... In wh- how is this not an act of worship, right? Um, and again, I think with Rome, there's just, well, look, we slapped a distinction on it. So therefore, it justifies it. Yeah. Anything else? So don't be an ignorant Protestant. There, there is a reason why a lot of Protestants, you know, and who knows, you know, the state of their souls, are being deceived and led astray into Rome. And I think part of it is because they're they're just actually not familiar with a lot of the deceptions of Rome, um, and and they're very taken in by things and all these distinctions. Oh wow, I never knew this. And yet the Protestant reformers saw all that, and they're like, yeah, we're not buying this anymore. This has no basis in the Word of God. You can't just justify everything because of your because you make a distinction, right? So don't be led astray. Um, That's it for now.